What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is McLean, Virginia. McLean is an unincorporated community in Northern Virginia with more than 50,000 residents. The history of this Fairfax County community can be traced back to the early 19th century when the area was settled by a farmer. In the mid-19th century, the area began to change as the Civil War brought new residents and businesses to the area. A post office was established in 1866 and the town was officially named McLean after John Roll McLean, a former publisher and owner of the Washington Post. Located just 10 miles west of Washington, D.C., and its close proximity to significant government institutions like the Pentagon and the CIA, McLean is home to many diplomats, members of Congress, and high-ranking government officials. These include former vice presidents and Supreme Court justices, a Speaker of the House, and is currently home to several professional athletes. From its humble origins, in the 21st century, McLean is home to several Fortune 500 companies, including Capital One, global consulting firm Booz Allen Hamilton, and Hilton Hotels. In 2022, it was revealed that McLean was the third wealthiest city in the United States with a median household income of $250,000. As a result, this affluent enclave is considered an idyllic place to live and work with crime rates that are considerably lower than the national average. But in 2017, residents realized the trappings of wealth did not provide sanctuary when the lives of two of their neighbors were brutally taken in the comfort of their own home. During a typical hot and humid D.C. afternoon in the summer of 2017, residents experienced a horrific crime in their wealthy enclave, a double murder. On July 14th, police arrived at the home of Pamela Hargan to find two deceased people inside. 63-year-old Pam was lying face down in the home's mudroom, which linked the garage with the kitchen. There was a pool of blood beneath her head. A blanket had been placed on top of her body and her cell phone was on top of that. As police searched through the house looking for suspects or other victims, they found the body of Pam's 23-year-old daughter, Helen, in the ensuite of one of the upstairs bedrooms. This was a large 5,000-square-foot, six-bedroom, five-and-a-half-bath home. Helen was sitting on the toilet with the lid closed, fully clothed. Officers knew there was trauma to her head based on the amount of blood that was present, but they couldn't see an actual wound. They also found a significant amount of blood in her mouth. Sitting between her legs was a rifle. The butt of the rifle was on the floor and the rifle was pointing up towards her head. To police and detectives who arrived at the scene, it looked like a murder-suicide. Pam Hargan was dedicated to her family and had worked hard her entire life to build a very successful corporate career to ensure financial stability for her and her three girls, Megan, Ashley, and Helen. She had divorced the girls' father when the girls were young and had moved around a lot with them before returning to the D.C. metro area in 2014, three years prior. At the time of her death, her estate was worth $8 million. 
She was also very generous with her money and often spent it on her children. 23-year-old Helen was the baby of the family. She was nine years younger than middle sister Ashley and 11 years younger than her oldest sister, Megan. Helen also appeared to have inherited her mom's ambition and had just returned to McLean after completing her degree at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. At SMU, she double majored in math and management science. After finding the bodies, Fairfax County Detective Brian Byerson first went to speak with Steve Hargan, Pam's ex-husband. He told Steve that Pam was shot twice in the mudroom and that Helen had a gunshot wound to her head that appeared to be self-inflicted. Steve immediately called their other two daughters, 34-year-old Megan and 32-year-old Ashley, to come to his house where he broke the news that their mother and youngest sister were dead. Megan and Ashley were devastated. Detectives spoke with Megan and Ashley, wanting to know if there had been any problems between their mom and sister. Both sisters told detectives that Helen had been depressed ever since she returned to Virginia. Ashley also told detectives that she knew Helen had thoughts about suicide and self-harm, but she couldn't imagine Helen killing their mother and then herself. Oldest sister Megan was particularly freaked out about what happened at her mother's house because Megan and her seven-year-old daughter were living there while her husband was deployed with the military. She told Detective Byerson that when she left the house around 1.30 that afternoon, Pam and Helen had been arguing and that Helen was incredibly angry. Megan said since coming home from college, Helen had been angry all the time and seemed to be struggling emotionally. But she echoed Ashley's statement that she couldn't imagine Helen committing a murder-suicide. Megan also told detectives it was her fault the rifle was in the house in the first place and that her mother and sister might have been attacked. The day before their deaths, Megan had called 911 to report two suspicious men walking around the neighborhood. To her, it looked like they were casing the houses to rob them. The two men in the neighborhood were the reason she'd taken the rifle from its hiding place up to the main floor of the house. It was a 22 caliber rifle that belonged to her husband. Pam allowed her to bring it into her house just until Megan and her husband moved to West Virginia. Megan said she and her husband had just closed on their house the day before Pam and Helen were killed. Later that night, after speaking with Steve Hargan and his daughters, Megan and Ashley, police spoke to reporters about the murders. Fairfax County Police Major Ed O'Carroll. Kath, you recognize that name? I do recognize it. He was the point person on the episode that we've done on the shopping cart killer who allegedly murdered people in both Virginia and Washington, D.C. I got the baby bar. I know alleged is important. (laughs) Anyway, Major Ed O'Carroll told reporters that two residents were discovered dead in their million-dollar McLean home. Major O'Carroll described the deaths as domestic violence at its worst and told reporters that the victims died because of a murder-suicide. The next day, Fairfax County Police Department issued a statement that said, Detectives worked through the night and now have determined the identities of the decedents, as well as the sequence of events leading to their deaths. 23-year-old Helen Lorena Hargan shot her mother, 63-year-old Pamela Denise Hansen Hargan, then shot herself. The Office of the Chief Medical Examiner will conduct autopsies today and will make official determinations as to the cause and manner of death. Detectives wanted to reassure neighbors that the seven-year-old child was not at home at the time of the incident and is safe with her mother. Also, all of the family dogs have been accounted for, 
Detective Byerson spoke with Megan again to find out why her mom and sister had been fighting the day they died. Megan told police that while Helen was at SMU, she had a part-time job as a waitress. It was at this job that 23-year-old Helen met and began dating a co-worker, 30-something, Carlos Gutierrez. They were serious and planned to live together before Helen returned to Virginia. Megan told Detective Byerson that several months before Helen moved back, their mother had started looking for a house to buy for Helen in Northern Virginia. But Megan said that Pam did not approve of Helen's relationship with Carlos. And although Helen and Carlos were not engaged, they were talking about it, and Helen wanted him to move to Virginia to be with her. On the morning they died, Pam told Helen that she had canceled the contract on the house she purchased for her because she believed Helen was going to try to move Carlos into the home despite Pam's objections. On the day of the murders, before the coroner had a chance to remove the bodies, Detective Julia Elliott and forensics investigators began combing through the house. Detective Byerson also requested that the victims be tested for gunshot residue on their hands and then added Megan to that request since the gun belonged to Megan's husband and she'd been in the house that day. Looking for evidence, Detective Elliott started in the mudroom where Pam Hargan was killed. She immediately noticed two things. The first was the blanket lying on top of Pam. It looked like it had been carefully placed on top of her, as if the killer had placed it there as an act of remorse and it was too hard to look at what they'd done to her. The second thing Detective Elliott noticed was Pam's cell phone, which was on top of the blanket, obviously having been placed there by her killer. Detective Elliott then went upstairs to the ensuite bathroom where Helen's body was found. She noted that Helen had a lot of blood on her face and it was impossible to see an entry wound. There was also a lot of blood on the floor, but the rifle itself had very little blood on it. The rifle case was inside the bathroom and the detective sent it with the rifle to the lab to see if there were any usable fingerprints or DNA on them. Downstairs in the basement, Detective Elliott noticed bookshelves with a large number of photo albums placed on the shelves. She started looking through them, and to her surprise, tucked inside one of the photo albums, she found a bunch of loose documents. They were bank statements and a spreadsheet with the passwords and security verification details to unlock all of Pam's accounts. I thought this, Kath, when I was reading this, that's an interesting place to find it, and I'm kind of surprised the detective did. Yeah, it's funny. She actually said that she was going through the photo albums because she wanted to see what her victims looked like in life. Oh, okay. But I actually think it's kind of a brilliant place to hide something like that. Totally brilliant. She should have gone through more of them and looked for money. Right. (laughs) Or or maybe she did. (laughs) She walked away with a couple hundo in her pocket. (laughs) However, Detective Elliot couldn't take the documents as evidence to figure out if they held any meaning because their search warrant signed by a judge did not include financial documents. So she photographed the bank statements and spreadsheet and put them back in the photo album. She planned to return later with another search warrant if detectives believed it was necessary. Then the medical examiner, whose name was Dr. Posthumus. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Posthumus. That is so funny. You know, his mother was like, all right, I'm sorry, sweetie, but you got to be a medical examiner when you grow up. (laughs) Which actually the opposite of that would be he'd be a killer. So it's better to put that in his mind early. (laughs) Exactly. He took the right path. Dr. Posthumus. That's classic. So the good doctor (laughs) released the results of Helen Hargan's autopsy. The gunshot wound she suffered was on the very top of her head and the bullet had traveled downward into her neck. Someone else? 
had pulled the trigger. If it wasn't a murder-suicide, what happened? Who would have wanted to kill Pamela or Helen Hargan, and what was their motive? Detective Byerson learned that the 911 call that sent police to Pam Hargan's home on July 14th came from a thousand miles away in Dallas, Texas. A man who gave his name as Carlos Gutierrez called 911 at 1.44 p.m. on the day of the shooting. He told dispatch that he was in Dallas, but that his girlfriend, Helen Hargan, lived in McLean, Virginia. He said he and Helen had spoken earlier that morning, but she stopped answering his calls. He was worried that her life was in danger. He was told by the 911 dispatcher that he needed to call his local jurisdiction in Dallas, file a report with them, and then tell them that Fairfax County required a teletype in order to do a welfare check. So was Fairfax in 1957 as opposed to 2017? I mean, like, that's a lot of steps to just... And a teletype! ...get a police officer on the line. Exactly. Carlos responded that he thought this was a life-or-death situation, and he thought someone might already be dead. The dispatcher responds, right, so contact your local jurisdiction and file the report. Can you imagine? No! You know, I'm bleeding from a gunshot wound. Do I got to call the ER and make an appointment? Apparently. (laughs) So he hung up and called back 15 minutes later. In an episode of 48 Hours entitled Death Hits Home, they played the call. The dispatcher said, so this just happened out of the blue? Your girlfriend is sitting in a house with a dead woman? And Carlos says, yes, I called earlier and didn't have Helen's home address, but now I have it. And that's apparently what it took for them to send the police. When the police arrived 90 minutes after Carlos's first call, Pam and Helen were both dead. The forensics from the rifle in the rifle case proved inconclusive. There was DNA on the rifle case from Helen and Megan, but there was no DNA on the rifle and no fingerprints. It looked like there were swipe marks like somebody had tried to wipe it clean. There was DNA on the rifle trigger, but it did not belong to Helen or Megan. Detective Julia Elliott followed up with a warrant for financial records from Pam Hargan's house. She wanted to collect the documents she found in the photo album to see if they could provide a clue as to what happened. However, when she went back to the house, there was a gap on the shelf where the photo album had been. Dun, 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 dun. No kidding. All the dust is just there taunting you. (laughs) (laughs) When she took a closer look at the pictures of the documents she'd taken, she realized that it wasn't just Pam's financial statements in the album. Back at the station, Detective Byerson received a voicemail from someone at Capital One Bank. The message said that bank employees had seen reports about Pam Hargan's murder and wanted him to know about some strange activity on her account. Just a few days before she was killed, Pam called the bank to request a transfer of $420,000 to a title company in West Virginia. Pam told the employee that she was buying a house for her daughter. However, this transaction hadn't gone through so Pam called the bank the next day. This was the morning of her murder. Detective Byerson met with the manager of the Capital One branch where Pam banked, and she told him that they recorded all of their calls with account holders. When he listened to the recording, he recognized the voice as one of Pam's daughters pretending to be her mother. Detective Byerson called her and asked her to meet with him at the station. 
Later that afternoon, Megan Hargan walked into the station. But when they brought her to an interview room, before they could ask her any questions, she started talking and wouldn't stop. Megan talked for four hours. She had a lot to say. Clearly. She again stressed to them the depth of Helen's depression and anger at their mom. She also repeated the story about the two men lurking in the neighborhood the day they were killed and reiterated that her sister wouldn't kill herself or her mom. When Detective Byerson asked about the wire transfer, she told him it was just an innocent mix-up at the bank. At first, Megan insisted that she wasn't the one who called the bank, but when Detective Byerson played the tapes for her, she admitted it was her making the calls. She said she lied because if she told him the truth, she knew how it would have looked. But she was adamant she hadn't murdered her mother or sister. Kat, did she ever tell detectives that it was her mom's idea to make the calls or that she had her mom's permission to make the calls, anything like that? Not that I saw. It doesn't sound like it at all. And that's a rookie move. Oh, yeah. That's the first thing you do. Everybody knows these bank calls are taped. Exactly. According to the 48 Hours episode, about halfway through the interview, Megan changed tactics. Rather than trying to explain everything, she told them just to blame her. I saw the video on the 48 Hours episode. She was very dramatic. She was flinging herself back in her chair going, just blame me. Just blame me. My family's been through too much already. Just blame me. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but she then agreed to take a polygraph and she actually took one three times and failed each time. Even though there were no other suspects and they had a financial motive, detectives had no evidence to back up what they were thinking. So they got back to work to find out what happened on the day Pam and Helen Hargan were killed. One year later, the case was still unsolved because they had insufficient evidence to prove that Megan was the killer. In a WUSA 9 article by journalist Peggy Fox, Pamela Hargan's sister, Tammy North, was frustrated that there had been no arrest since her sister and her niece were killed more than a year ago. Neither Megan nor Ashley had been named a suspect, and Megan and her daughter had moved out of state just a few months after the murders to join her husband in West Virginia. Megan and her husband had used a VA loan to buy a house there. No funeral services had been held for either Pam or Helen. Their former home remained vacant. And Kath, I saw somewhere that it was sold a little over a year later for like $1.375 million, and this is 2018. Anyway, just a week prior to the year anniversary of their tragic deaths, an estate sale took place at Pam Hargan's McLean home and attracted hundreds of buyers. Have you been in one of those? It's kind of depressing. Not when it's so quickly after someone's death. Yeah. Actually, the most depressing thing I ever went to was an estate sale due to a foreclosure. Oh, those are sad. Yeah. And I remember like walking through the house and seeing like baptism certificates of the kids on the wall. Oh, my gosh. Super depressing. Like, basically, the feds came in and locked everything down. Yeah, that was a big deal. But anyway, it would take almost 18 months of investigation before the Commonwealth's attorney had enough evidence to prosecute. On November 9, 2018, 35-year-old Megan Hargan was arrested at her home in West Virginia. Police announced they found gunshot residue on both of Megan's hands and the angle of the ammo that entered Helen's skull was not consistent with the self-inflicted gunshot wound. 
And when investigators searched Megan's West Virginia home, they found the missing spreadsheet of Pam's bank account passwords that Detective Elliot had been looking for. Megan Hart had pleaded not guilty to the murder charges, and almost three years after her arrest in 2021, she went to trial. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. According to an article in the Washington Post by journalist Justin Juvenal, the Fairfax County prosecutor built a case that relied primarily on circumstantial evidence. During opening statement, prosecutors contended the tragedy was set in motion a month before the July 2017 murders. Megan falsely used her mother's bank account to prove she had the money to put a bid on a house for her family in West Virginia. So what she had done, Kath, is she had taken her mother's bank statement and she sort of recreated it with her name on the statement. That makes sense. At the time, Megan had just $30 to her name. (laughs) What are you laughing at? (laughs) You got to stop smoking those unfiltered camels. Okay, I'm sorry. That just totally reminded me of something I meant to tell you. (laughs) So as you all know, we have a new team member, Nate. And Kath, he told me that he'd run into a friend of his from school who said to him, tell your aunt and Kathy that I will do those TikTok videos for them if they'll pay me too. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> and Megan Nate said, his response was, two? I'm getting paid in food. Right. <laughs> Barely that. And he said, they've made it very clear that I don't get paid until the two of them make any money. Exactly. <laughs> and he goes, and since they're not covering their costs yet, right. I got a ways to go. <laughs> He knows we're good for it. Oh, my God. One of these days. Exactly. (laughs) Hope springs eternal. That is really funny, though. I love how they assumed it was a fancy position for me. Because it was Katie team member, not Katie intern. Right. (laughs) A paid intern. Exactly. Like internships were back in our day where you're like, can I work for you for free? Eh, I don't know if you're qualified for free labor. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, at the time, Megan had $30 to her name and didn't have a job. While at the same time, her mother was a successful executive and had hundreds of thousands of dollars in various bank accounts. Same. That's how you get paid. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) the money. He has to wait. (laughs) Evidence presented at trial showed that the conflict between Megan and her mom stemmed from a financial dispute. 
Megan, who was buying a house in West Virginia, resented the fact that her mother, Pam, wasn't helping her financially, but at the same time was buying a house for her sister, Helen. Do you have any idea, by the way, why that happened? I never read anything anywhere that said that, but I do have a theory. Okay. Ready for my speculation? Because because this is what we do. (laughs) It is what we do. So Megan, as we said, was 11 years older than Helen. Right. And so I'm wondering if back when Megan was getting out of college or finishing training or, you know, whatever route she had decided to take, her mom had offered something similar and it might have been pissed away. <laughs> yeah, right. Might have been squandered. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. That's just kind of my theory. Because maybe can't... Helen was the youngest and she was the favorite one and she just graduated with a double major. That was kind of fancy. Which the youngest should be the favorite. So I'm no, okay with that not, theory. Okay. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> you said it. You know it. <laughs> Again, purely speculation. <laughs> right. Prosecutors said in court that Megan was running out of time to come up with the money for the down payment on a house. So the day before the murders, she fraudulently tried to transfer $420,000 from her mom's bank account to the title company in West Virginia. But her plan blew up on her when the bank alerted her mom and Pam put a freeze on the funds. Okay, I know we just told a story, but I have to tell another quick one. And this is what it reminds me of. And if in any way what I've done is illegal, nobody gets to wrap me out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) When my mom died, which was a couple of decades ago, My sister and I kept her bank account open because we were using it to pay expenses for her house. So it's not a big deal. I perfected signing her name years ago. We knew all of her pins and card numbers, what have you. But one day I got a notice that one of the checks that we'd done hadn't gone through. So I called the bank and I said, there's plenty of money in the account. Can you let me know what the problem is? And they said, we really need your mom to come into the bank. And I said, well, I'm sorry, that's impossible. She's not available right now. So please deal with me. Do you need me to come into the bank? I'm happy to do it. And he's like, no, we really need her to come in. And I said, again, she's unavailable. And he said, well, according to Social Security, your mom's dead. (laughs) Those rat bastards at Social Security. (laughs) So my response was, well, exactly. That's why she can't. (laughs) But I managed to say it with a straight face. But anyway, so, yeah, they totally threw us under the bus. We did have power of attorney as you know, from mom's trust. Right. It was just so much easier not to have to go through it and transfer everything. And so then we had to go through and do it. But yeah, social security. (laughs) All right, back to the story. So it was when Megan had tried to transfer $420,000 that the bank alerted her mom and Pam put a freeze on her funds. But the prosecution contended that when Pam learned what Megan was doing and tried to stop the transfer, she shot her mother with the 22 caliber rifle to keep her from interfering in Megan's plan. She then killed Helen because she was a witness. At trial, the prosecution's key witness was Helen's boyfriend, Carlos Gutierrez. On the day of the murders, Helen called her boyfriend in Dallas several times, telling him what was happening at her mom's house. During his testimony, Carlos fought to keep his composure as he testified to his final conversations with the woman he planned to marry. The first call came around 11.30 in the morning. Carlos told the jury that Helen told him that her sister had killed her mother. She sounded frightened and he could hear her mouth trembling and she was sobbing. Carlos told jurors Helen said Megan was downstairs transferring money on the computer. Prosecutors told the jury that investigators later discovered that at the same time Helen was telling Carlos about her mother, Pam's computer was accessing her bank account to transfer $420,000 to Megan's title company. In another call to Carlos, shortly after the first one, Helen told him she could hear her mother dying. Oh my God. I can't imagine that. Carlos testified that he urged Helen to get out of the home, 
but Helen said she was concerned for Megan's daughter, who was seven years old at the time, who was also inside. He spoke with Helen several additional times, but eventually Carlos couldn't reach her. Prosecutors said Megan shot her younger sister Helen sometime around 1 p.m., and Carlos testified that about 15 minutes later, he began to get a series of strange text messages from Helen's phone that he ultimately concluded Megan had sent pretending to be his girlfriend. One read, everything is fine. I'm not mad at Megan. Prosecutors said it was all part of Megan's plan to pin the murders on Helen. She staged the scene inside the home, sent fake text messages to Carlos, and made up a false story about her anger and depression that painted Helen as the killer. Megan left the home a short time later, and that was around the time Carlos called 911 and was finally able to summon police. The middle sister Ashley also testified at trial. Ashley did not recall telling detectives on the night Helen died that her sister was depressed or had spoken about self-harm. Forensic specialist Iris Daly Graff was brought to the stand and testified on behalf of the prosecution. She told the jury about reconstructing Helen Hargan's death scene and how she determined that it would have been physically impossible for Helen to hold the rifle and pull the trigger with the gun aimed at the top of her head. Her arms simply weren't long enough. In fact, they weren't even close to being long enough. They were five inches too short. There's no way they'd be able to reach the trigger. Detective Elliott took the stand and told the jury that prior to the murders, Megan substituted her own name on Pam's bank statements in order to show the title company proof of funds. Pam was unaware of this until the day of the murders when the bank called her and let her know. A bank officer had also called Pam to authenticate the attempted wire transfer, and she adamantly said that she did not request the transfer. The defense contended that it was Helen, not Megan, whose actions were suspicious that day. Helen didn't call 911, she didn't run out of the house, and she told her boyfriend not to call 911. The defense contended that Helen was bitter that her mother was going to cancel the house she was buying for her. The prosecution suggested that Helen was worried about Megan's seven-year-old daughter who was at the home at the time. However, the coroner determined... I'm sorry, what was the medical examiner slash coroner's name? <laughs> Dr. Posthumus. Yes, it was. That Pam and Helen were killed roughly two hours apart. So this is also odd. Like what was happening in those two hours? And I really wonder if it was one of those situations where it's your sister, you're not going to snitch, but you're freaking out. I don't know. I don't either. I mean, I understand that she was concerned for the seven-year-old. Because even though it was said in a statement that Detective O'Carroll made at the very beginning, remember we talked about the fact that he said the little girl wasn't at the house, the dogs were all accounted for? Yeah, but he also said that it was a murder-suicide. Well, that's what I was about to say. Like, just because he said that doesn't mean that's true. Right. I understand her being concerned for it. But for two hours, like she told Carlos she was listening to her mom die. Does that mean she sat up there for two hours by herself in her bathroom? Right. This is, I don't know, this is so strange. Just the chronology of everything. Also, Helen's body didn't show any signs of a life and death struggle, and Ashley was presented as a liar. Remember, on the stand, Ashley said she did not remember saying Helen was depressed or wanted to hurt herself. The defense pointed out that during Ashley's testimony, she said 150 times that she couldn't recall something she said to the police after the murders. That's a lot. Like, is it trauma? I was just thinking that, like, you know, she could have been on autopilot. 
Yeah. Obviously, her sister and her mother are dead. That's a, you know, big deal. And remember, this is four years after her mom and sister were killed. The defense also presented an expert who testified that while Helen's arms weren't long enough to reach the rifle trigger, her legs were. This bolstered the theory presented by the defense that Helen was able to shoot herself by using her toe. (laughs) (laughs) Is she Simone Biles? I mean, like, what's the deal? Or does she have your toes? (laughs) Dude, when I was in like sixth grade, my friend Jennifer's parents rented the beach house and they're like, come spend the night, Kathy. And Jennifer was like super fun. We had a good time together. But every so often I would just taunt her. And I remember like picking up a cookie with my toes and throwing it at her across the room until like it smacked her in the forehead. And she was so mad. And her mother was like, good God, what did you just do? And and she looks at my feet with my long toes. And suddenly I felt naked, you know, like you were so exposed. Like it's like her mom, her dad, like everybody was looking at my toes and being like, oh, Jesus, they're so long. Nobody had ever seen that happen before. I was like, oh, geez, note to self. Don't throw any cookies with your feet. Okay. So anyway, in a surprise blow to the prosecution, their expert witness who testified about the impossibility of Helen's arms reaching the trigger conceded that Helen's legs were long enough that they could have reached the trigger. Megan Hargan didn't testify in her own defense. So, Kath, just out of curiosity, how are you picturing this? Megan not testifying? No. I'm kidding. (laughs) You're like, I imagine her sitting there quietly at council table. (laughs) Well, unless she's Erica Jenkins and she's flipping a lectern over. Right. There you go. But honestly, I can't because I'm not even sure if my toes were long enough that I'd be coordinated enough to get my toe on the trigger because your head, her head had to be like her head. So you're picturing like her waist sitting on the toilet, bending over at the waist gun barrel on the top of her head right because remember it went straight down through her neck right and then and then her toe does the damage exactly so i honestly had a really hard time figuring that out and still to this day don't know okay here's a funny thing when i first pictured this in my head i pictured her sitting up on the toilet that's why i said simone biles like putting her leg above her head (laughs) (laughs) i didn't think about that That actually probably makes more sense. No, it doesn't. I I think bending over (laughs) makes more sense. But anyway. During closing arguments, the prosecution said there was no evidence Pam was going to cancel the contract on the house she was buying for Helen. There was no animosity between the two of them and Megan's actions spoke for themselves. Defense attorneys insisted to the jury that there was reasonable doubt. The toe on the trigger could not be ruled out by either defense or or prosecution expert witnesses. The defense attorneys told the jury, if it's possible, it means there's doubt. On March 24th, 2022, the jury began deliberations. Fewer than two days later, the jury found Megan guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison on each of the charges. Just eight months later, in November of 2022, The case was in the headlines again when it was announced that Megan Hargan's verdict was overturned due to juror misconduct. So Kath and I talked a little bit about how we envisioned this whole rifle toe thing going on. During the trial, one of the jurors went home and used a rifle to test the defense theory that Helen used her toe to pull the trigger. The juror concluded that it was not possible, especially since the medical examiner determined that Helen was shot on the top of the head in a downward angle. During deliberations, The juror told other jurors what she had discovered. The juror shared this information with the defense team 
and Megan's defense attorneys brought this up to the judge. They argued that reenacting the shooting was equivalent to jury misconduct since the judge had instructed jurors not to conduct outside research. Megan's sentence was vacated. I have to throw in a side note here. When Kathy and I write these episodes, we sort of group things according to category. The title of Kathy's category was A Woman Ruins It for Everyone. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell my secrets. <laughs> In late September 2023, now 40-year-old Megan Hargan again stood trial for the murders of her mother and her sister. At the retrial, the prosecution and defense focused on the same issues they'd raised at Megan's first trial. The prosecution maintained that there was not one shred of evidence that Helen murdered Pam. If Megan wasn't the killer, why was she the only one home that day who had gunshot residue on her hands? Defense attorneys insisted that it was possible Helen killed herself, and acknowledging it was possible, again, meant that jurors were not provided with enough evidence to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. After deliberations, Megan was again found guilty on two counts of second-degree murder and two counts of using a firearm in the commission of a felony. In a statement, Fairfax County Commonwealth's attorney, Steve Descano, said, When the first conviction was vacated, I promised that my office would continue to fight for justice for the Hargan family and for the community, and today we have obtained that outcome. Today's guilty verdict has been a long time coming, and I hope that Pam and Helen's loved ones will be able to take one step closer to healing. Ten days prior to the day we're recording this episode, Megan Hargan was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison for murdering her mother and her sister in 2017. She also received an additional sentence of six years in prison for two gun-related charges. You know, I will say in the episodes that we've been doing recently, one of the things that I've liked to see, and I know this sounds bad, but the judges, at least in these cases, seem to be ruling more on consecutive sentences rather than concurrent sentences. I do feel like we've covered those episodes. And I don't know why. I don't know why those are the ones we pick, because right. certainly that's not what we look at. I know so many times we see concurrent sentences, and we're like, boo. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's true. The ones in the recent past have been consecutive sentences. Yeah. Commonwealth's attorney Steve Descano said, Megan Hargan's actions in July 2017 go beyond what most of us can imagine. On a quiet Friday morning in her mother's home, she made an irreversible decision one that would devastate her family and tear the community apart. First-degree murder is the most serious offense you can be convicted of in Virginia, and today's sentence reflects the gravity of Megan Hargan's crimes. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We are going to have an episode coming up on Patreon that is open to everyone. That's something we're able to do for Patreon, not only the paying members, We'll get their content, but we can do something else for everyone. And that's where we are going to put it. And we will let you know. And for our paying Patreon members, you're still going to get your bonus episode. Correct. And the bloopers. Because you're helping us cover expenses. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. We're not Almost. there yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> well, do expenses include our like salaries for us? Because it's been two years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm they. sorry. <laughs> we do not get any salaries. If we're oh. doing this a year from now. We got to take I'm a serious look. Exactly. <laughs> we have to seriously reflect on what we're doing. I agree. Anyway, but we will in the meantime, enjoy this very much. So thank you very much. And please download. Download, listen, delete. Boom.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.